Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you're on social media, follow us on Twitter at 814NEXT. Like our page on Facebook. Feel free to comment on both platforms. Lend your voice to the dialogue. For those listening on radio, thank you for tuning in. Welcome to another edition of Next for Black History Month. And today we want to analyze the relationship between entertainment and the history of African Americans. Now, many of you are probably thinking about traditional entertainment that you see in here today. You think about black radio, you think about black music, black stage plays. And many of you may look and, and, and hear and view this as mere entertainment. It's so much deeper than that. From an African-American perspective, the imagery and the stories of African-Americans have been weaponized and dictated for so many years and has had a lot to do with the way society in general has viewed African-Americans. To this very day, it is a mantra of black people in this country, when you turn the television on for something that is not produced by African-Americans, there's usually complaint about the way African-Americans are portrayed uh, in music, on radio, and things along those lines. And so many, many years ago, there are several examples in history where African-Americans kind of took back the narrative and made the decision, the conscious decision to tell their own stories. None better than the example of the Harlem Renaissance. And that was a wonderful time in history between 1910 and 1930 where you had the great migration of African-Americans coming from South to North for various reasons. Uh, World War I kind of slowed down traditional immigration so employers found themselves wanting more African-Americans to come up South to take advantage of some of the jobs. Uh, the, the area in Manhattan where Harlem was located was uh, populated by predominantly white people at that time. There was a boom of industrialization and there were not enough bodies to fill many of these buildings that they were building. And so uh, things were kind of loosened. African-Americans had an end to start building their own Mecca, if you will. Some 300,000 African-Americans migrated from the South to the Harlem area. And you started to see what is now known as the Harlem Renaissance. And it was this wonderful explosion of black artists and black writers and black poets, um, musicians and playwrights. And for the first time in history, America got a taste of what it looked like, felt like, and sounded like to see, hear, and feel the black experience from the black perspective. It led to an all-new respect for African-Americans. It gave birth to some of the, the greatest African-American history, history figures the world has ever known, Langston Hughes, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Marcus Garvey, the list goes on. W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the people that came up south as well. And you had all of these newspapers and plays and different clubs, the Savoy, the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club was fascinating because it was an all-white club with all-black entertainment. And so segregation was still a thing. And you had uh, some of our white brothers and sisters who wanted to enjoy the culture but did not want to fraternize with African-Americans. So there, there came the rise of the Cotton Club, and the list goes on. And so this is something that we celebrate, not just in the African-American community, but in the community at large, because it gave birth to many of the people that we see today, um, people like your Tyler Perry's and some of the, the individuals we have in our studio today. So on a local level, we wanted to celebrate that very same thing of what it means to have this community own its own narrative and become to their community what entertainment could and should be. And so with that being said, uh, we have in our studio today, Mr. Homer Lee Smith. Uh, Homer, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir, for uh, inviting us to be here today. Yes, sir. And Mr. Jermaine Beeson. Jermaine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Miss Tanya Teglo. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. 
And so I'll start with um, Mr. Smith. Homer, you were one of the primary disc jockeys. I even hate to use that term because you and Bobby Kay and the others were so much more, but one of the primary disc jockeys for what was known as Super Soul Saturday or what is known as Super Soul Saturday, um, based out again and has been a staple in the African-American community. Talk to us a little bit about your past and the rise of your role with Super Soul Saturday. Well, Super Soul Saturday, as you indicated, is a outreach program of Gannon University. Uh, Gannon has a college radio station that was formed in 1972. And with that comes certain requirements. It's, not, it's a non-commercial station, similar to WQLM, where we can't do advertising, but we can have underwriters to get messages out for businesses, for churches, for events that have taken place. Uh, so in 1977, Harry Harrison, who was also uh, here at WQLN and hosted an uh, uh, OIC segment of WQLN before he went on to uh, WICU and currently working for NBC and Fox uh, as a national, uh, uh, national spokesperson and national uh, interviewing uh, people on that. He was kind of the way when he left as a college student uh, Bill Allen or Bill Hurd and myself started working opposite weeks. We would come on. I would do one week. He would do one week. Bobby Kay joined us shortly after that. Timmy Mack, who's being nominated for a national award by the Intercollegiate Broadcast System and right. will be in New York uh, March 5th through the 8th. Uh, he's a finalist, so he will receive a finalist award. We're hoping that his he will receive that national award. So we're just excited about how Super So Saturday has grown. Dorothy Smith and Danny Jones that hosts uh, Jazz Electric came on shortly after that. Mm -hmm. And we had some great people that we'll talk later in the program who've gone on to do great things like Mike Allen, who uh, is a uh, works with uh, ABC and is a editor for uh, the Stephanopoulos show, uh, was also with us as a young teen. So a lot of people got their start there and have gone on to do great things in broadcasting. So for the listeners, when he mentions Danny Jones, yes, this is the same Danny Jones that is the CEO of GCAC right now. Correct. And if you've ever seen us together, I call him Mr. J from his days yes. with Jazz Electric. Right, <laughs> definitely, yes. So WQLN was a staple in the African-American community. I know there's an old song called The Soundtrack of My Life. Mm -hmm. And WQLN, WQLN, WERG Super Soul Saturday really is is the foundation of the soundtrack of my life. And I'm sure Jermaine can say the same because we're from the same generation. There was no such thing as a reunion or a Saturday morning, cleaning the house, listening to Super Soul Saturday. It's where we went for our announcements. When did you realize that it was becoming such a staple in the African-American community? I think you, we're still realizing it today. Mm. Um, when people hear my voice and never seen me before, I know that voice. And that's kind of a, a thing that, because I do a lot of the, uh, a lot of the production work is my voice, the voice of uh, Bernadette Baker. We call her the voice of Gloria McClellan Glow. Uh, so they hear the voice and may not know the face. And then my name is Homer Smith, but on the radio I use Lee Smith. So and sometimes people know me as Homer, and some people know me as Lee, and don't put the two together. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of contradictory in a way that. I never used Lee uh, as growing up. I was always Homer L. Smith Jr. And I don't know why I took the name Lee Smith on the radio, but everybody kind of has a different kind of name, Mr. J. Mm -hmm. It might not associate it being Danny Jones. Bobby K., Bobby Kegler. 
Timmy Mac, Tim McConnell. So a lot of times it's kind of a persona that you have mm-hmm. that may be different than who you are doing the week. Mm. So let's talk about Bobby K for a second, who has passed away several years yes. ago. And once again, a huge figure in the community. There was a social consciousness and still is yes. a social consciousness to Super Soul Saturday. And I remember many of us can remember the the, the counsel that we received from Bobby K. Yes on the radio on Saturdays. Were these conversations that you had in the background that kind of spilled over to the radio? Was it organic? Where did a lot of that kind of conversation come from? Well, Bobby, as, as most people know, uh, grew up in America's Georgia, attended Fort Valley State College, uh, along with Brother Johnny Johnson and Brother Johnny Harris, uh, who are all my frat brothers, uh, members of Omega Sci-Fi fraternity and charter members of Zeta Pi Chapter. Bobby served as my boss when I worked at the Erie, Erie County Human Relations Commission. Uh, we became friends, brothers, and he was a mentor to me in regards to the radio. Uh, I did a lot of the production stuff, but Bobby managed the staff. In uh, 2008, Bob passed away. In fact, back two weeks from, uh, from this actual date, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. he passed away. And as I was telling Jermaine as we were coming in, uh, I found him, and he had had an aneurysm. Uh, he didn't show up for a program, a show, and uh, went to a basketball game, and he hadn't shown up, so I went to his house, and I had found him. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the aneurysm, and uh, he passed maybe 30 days after that. But Bob had a vision for young people. He loved young people. He addressed in his program each week something specific to encouraging young people Mm -hmm. to use their full talents, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it was here in Erie or if they went to other areas, but also to hopefully bring that back. Like you went away to Atlanta Mm -hmm. and you've coming back, came back to use the gifts that you received in your, in your whole lifetime. We're talking about 50 years, you're where you are, but it's a culmination. I came from Buffalo and had the experience of WBLQ, I'm sorry, WBLK and WUFO. And then having friends like Steve Collins, who was in radio here, then went on to do radio in Oakland, California, and then San Diego, California. Those are the kind of success stories that WERG, or Gannon's Communication Arts Program, has uh, helped some people. With people who've gone to school for communication art, like Curtis Jones, the captain, has a degree in communications. Chili J has a degree in communications from Edinburgh University. So... These are students who maybe they didn't go do communications in their field of study, but they have an opportunity to use that. And then those who are part of WERG were mobile DJs. So Bobby and I also hosted skating parties and dances that, that the young people came to and had an influence in that way, providing a safe place for people to come and have fun. Many times, some kids after the end of the event, Bobby, can I get a ride home? So those are the kind of things that Bob did. He lended himself to the young people of the community. He was able to possibly stop them if he saw them doing something that wasn't wrong because he had a relationship. Right. And even in education today where I work at Erie Rise, you have to have a relationship with young people to say something. Because if you say the wrong thing to a child and they don't know you, you're not my father. Right. So you have to have a relationship first and pull them in a way that you don't embarrass them. He did that. So let me ask you one more question before we move over to Jermaine. Mm-hmm. 
So what does it feel like as you work in community and you look through our community and you see so many of us in our different disciplines Mm -hmm. whose lives you have spoken into directly and indirectly through this relationship with Super Soul Saturday and the, the various events that you've been connected to? What does that feel like to see these young adults in their own lives, knowing you all had something to do with that? Well, the word says, let the work that I've done speak for me. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that uh, coming in as a transplant and spending the majority of my life here, spending 18 years in Buffalo and now being here for the last 48 years, Erie has become my adoptive home. Um, Families that you know, people that you knew, people who watch your kids grow up and babysit babysit your kid, them going to the Martin Luther King Center for daycare. There's, it's just an umbrella that I love this city when I came here. It was just, as kind of go back to Buffalo. When I left Buffalo, I lived in the area that there were four gangs right around my area, and God had a hedge of protection around me that there were instances where I could have been killed. Erie kind of saved my life. I wasn't in a gang, but there was an influence of gang violence all around at that time. So just coming to Erie, the warm, warm families that I met here, like the Horton family who uh, adopted me as a son, uh, joining St. James Amy Church where uh, Pastor Gaucher was the pastor when I came into to the church, and he just lost his wife this week. Uh, those were the things that uh, just made me feel that this was a warm place. And seeing great, great things happen for people, I wish that some of the people who left and are doing great things, would have been able to use that talent here. That's the thing that I think that brain drain, we lose our best, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes uh, they're not opportunities. I have a son who's working for a defense firm, found a position in a firm that's in a uh, British-based firm. G had the same financial leadership program but only had two positions. He found a firm that had 30. They hired him before he even finished college, Mm -hmm. paid for his master's degree, now making 125000 Where is he going to make that here in the right, right. So those are the things that I think that uh, are best leave sometimes. And then our young people who stay don't have an opportunity to see that. I think they have to come back and invest in the community that they, they left. Mm-hmm. So Jermaine Beeson, Jermaine is the co-owner of J&J Productions. And um, I had the opportunity to... Uh, just kind of see and hear all about the the latest production that you've had, which is rooted in personal experience. Talk about the, uh, not just the production that you have out now, the productions, but just your background and what led to you uh, being the co-founder of J&J Productions. Well, I've uh, I've been doing shows, or acting in the shows with the uh, Erie Playhouse since 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, What brought along uh, J&J Productions, I went to... um, the uh, president of at that time at the Erie Playhouse and I suggested that we do um, a Raisin in the Sun but I was too late they were doing Clybourne Park so I thought to myself I'm going to call my cousin Corey I told him my idea I said I know we will draw people in so let's do this ourselves and that's how J&J became um now, J&J, my name is Jermaine, and his middle name is Jermaine. And we are second cousins, so that's where J&J came from. I like that. Now, after that, we were going to uh, do a Tyler Perry show, but we found out he doesn't get rights to do his shows. So 
In 2015, I was, the Lord woke me up out of my sleep. And uh, he told me to write my story. So I started texting my best friend, Stacy McClure. It was like 11:17 at night. She woke up. She was like, "What is this?" I said, "God just told me to write it. I mean, He gave me the names and everything. I know nothing about Adasia or Malcolm. I just knew what happened to me. Mm-hmm. When I was seven years old, I was molested by my f- most favorite uncle in the world. And uh, when I wrote that story, I saw him like three weeks later, and God told me. When you see him again, tell him that you forgive him. And I did. I saw him on 24th and Parade. And I told him, I said, Unc, I forgive you. And he put his head down. He cried. I cried. We embraced him. It's done. Now, the reason why I put the story on stage is it's therapeutic for me. And it's also to help other people. Right. Because, um, you know, as a victim, sometimes you question yourself, like, why? You know, why would you want to do something like that to me? What did I give you to, to think that you could violate me like that? Mm-hmm. But my message to the victim is it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some people are sick. I don't know why they choose to do the things that they do, but. The victims, again, it's not your fault. And it doesn't um, it doesn't make you what they are. And what I mean is it didn't define me. Right. You know, because I told a very close relative of mine, one person at that time, and she used it against me. And I also told my father and he told me to boy stop lying and don't ever repeat that again and you know when we were young what happened in the house stayed stayed in the house let me let me me add to that let me add to that for the listener because in the african-american community there's a big thing about telling my business or having folks in my bit that is a big huge violation in the african-american community it's one of the reasons why traditionally african-americans do not go to therapy because essentially you want me to pay you to tell you my business we are very particular about that and so you are breaking a huge taboo according to what we've all been raised like but as you've pointed out it needs to be spoken about because there's a lot of people walking around traumatized with your story go ahead with your story now, in Family Secrets 2, we'll, we'll rewind to Family Secrets 1. Which is uh, the name of the, the production. Yes, Family Secrets 1. And you 1 wrote then. that. Yes. Based on this experience. Right. Okay. Okay, I took that, and um, I had a, a wife and a, and a husband and a daughter. Now, another message is, you know, I don't know if you know this, but um, out of all the women in, in America, black women, have the highest rate of HIV. Mm. Okay. Now, in my opinion, it's not factual. I'm just going on my opinion. But in my opinion, it's because a lot of us were on the download. Okay. And I took an I took a situation where a man was cheating on his wife. Okay. And being on the downloads when you embrace a homosexual lifestyle, right? 
covertly. Right. When you may have a wife or a girlfriend in your public life. Yes. And he was cheating on his wife, and she thought that he was cheating on her with a woman. But he wasn't. He was cheating on her with a man. Not just any man. But he didn't know that he was cheating on his own wife with his daughter's boyfriend. Now, my message is you need to be honest because you never know what you are doing. You never know who you are hurting. And with that, the the girl, Deja, had an aneurysm. And because of the traumatic experience, she died. So fast forward into Family Secrets 2. I took one of the worst scenarios that can happen in a marriage. And with the faith of the Lord and with praying and with counseling, they stayed together. Now, my message is, you know how we'll, man, I love her. Oh, I love him. We quickly run to that altar. But something very minute, very small happens, and where are we going? We're going to get a divorce. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of that. But I promise you this, when I get married again, divorce is not an option. It happens too much. You mentioned Tyler Perry earlier and couldn't license his work. But I do hear a great deal of him in your story. I know that Tyler was not formally trained in theater. This was something he just had a knack for. He had a story to tell. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's kind of your story. You aren't formally trained in this, correct? Not at all. You don't have a formal education in this? Not at all. Okay, so this is all organic. Right. How has it been received from the audiences since your first production? Oh, man, it's overwhelming. I mean, I see people that I've never seen in my life. Hey, that's the guy that writes the plays. So, I mean, you know, I get text messages because my my phone number is out there. I get phone calls. Um, You know, I got a relationship with the Crimes Victim Center. And, you know, my plays have helped people out through them. So, uh, by me doing this, Erie has really shown me a lot of love. They really have. Corey and I, they've really, really shown us a lot of love. And there's another one, February 15th, called Thou Shall Not Judge, and it's going to bring everything together. Full circle. Full circle, yes. So I know Bill Williams. He's a personal friend of mine, and he's, I want to say Bill is either the current president of the board at the Playhouse or the outgoing. He's the current president. Yes. And he's been involved in a lot of productions. When he and I talked about this first production of yours, because I think he was in that first production. Yes. Mm -hmm. He pulled me to the side. He said, listen, man, this this young brother's the truth. This (laughs) thing is going to work. He was just very, very impressed. And for someone who has had as, as much experience as he's had in this arena, I thought that was high praise. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, and then one more thing I want to go back to that I want you to comment on. You talked about a raisin in the sun. It's been noted in the African-American community. When you go to the Playhouse, I've gone to every African-American play the Playhouse has ever had. Always well attended. Mm-hmm. always well attended and yes. it's, it's always begged the question well if these plays are so well attended why aren't we doing more of them so I find it fascinating that you, you talk about I mean Lorraine Hansberry that one of the best plays ever, ever. right ever. yes and so was there a frustration that led to you asking the question in the first place and wanting to do this play absolutely now I'm on the board of the Erie Playhouse but um, I'm going to speak what I feel Yes, I was absolutely frustrated. And I think the last show for African-Americans that was produced at the Erie Playhouse was uh, Once on This Island. And that was like five, six years ago, maybe even longer. So we haven't had an African-American show at the Erie Playhouse in a very long time. You could probably say Clybourne Park, but 
that's not an African-American show. Mm -hmm. You know, it's predominantly white cast. So, you know, when we did uh, The Wiz, great outcome. Color Purple, I think during that time, the only show that beat us out was Les Mis. So I, I don't understand why we don't get more shows. But you took it upon yourself to, to do, create. To do our own thing. What you didn't see was exactly what we talked about for the Harlem Renaissance. Um, African-Americans took it upon themselves to say, I'm going to tell the story that I want to see. Yes. And um, bravo for you. Let's go to Tanya. Tanya, you've got a um, wonderful occupation as a historian. And as we're talking to uh, Homer Smith over here, as a, his days and even now, as a disc jock, and again, using that term lightly because I know that it's so much more, Nat D. Williams caught your attention yeah. as a writer. Talk about that, kind of your history and background. What led to you want to write about people like Nat Williams? Well, it's really quite simple. When I was, um, when I was in college and I was in a class called Holocaust and History, we learned a lot about the Rwandan genocide. And I knew that they used the radio for the technology to carry out the genocide. So when it came time for me to write my master's thesis, for some reason that class stuck in my head in the technology that they used. And I said to myself, where can I find a story where they took radio and used it for something good? So I started looking into the history of different radio stations and what they did during the civil rights movement and what they did for community activism. And when I, when I started learning about WDIA and everything they did for their goodwill campaign, I started to take a closer look at each of the DJs. And later on, I came to, I come to find out that Nadie Williams wrote thousands of columns in African-American newspapers. And what I did for about four years in Edinburgh's library <clears throat> is I interlibrary loaned all the African-American newspapers I could find that he wrote for. And it was about, I don't know, four or five of them. And I sat down and I collected each one of his installments and all the different social commentary that he wrote about and everything. I've now published several articles about it. And Nat D wrote about everything from the blues to um, anything that was affecting the com community at that time. And when Nat D wrote, it's important for people to know, he started as a columnist in 1931 for the Memphis World, but even as he was also a school teacher at Booker T. Washington High School in Memphis. He taught history. And at that point in time, Memphis was still segregated. So the rule of the African-American teacher in the community was very, very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, in WDIA actually had two school teachers that were disc jockeys on their stations. Um, A.C. Williams taught science at, at a neighboring school, and they both ended up being disc jockeys. And Nat D. Williams' writing career, he would talk about all the um, social issues of the day, from the African-American family to the, um, 
to the to the what alcohol did to the community, police brutality, all that kind of stuff. And really, what really caught my attention, though, is what WDIA did for the disabled community. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, polio was a disease that was ravishing the African-American community and a lot of kids. And WDIA said, we want to do something about it. So they helped they helped create a special school back in 1955 for kids with polio to go to. And the DJs even drove the buses. The DJs were very active in making sure that school had money to exist. So when I, you know, when I combined these different facets together, it just it was something I knew I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And even though I'm not like a big time author yet, I've had some opportunities to publish in a couple of places. I've had some opportunities to work on some pretty intense projects with authors like Robert Gordon. Um, and just the other night, I did a presentation at the Jefferson Society here in Erie. Um, so I'm really, really trying to get that story out to people. And a lot of what people don't understand is WDIA got a lot of their power through advertising. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of the jingles and stuff that you would hear on the radio seem silly, probably, back back in that day. But what they were able to do is through the money that they generated through their goodwill campaign, they were able to give it to various charitable um, charitable causes. The station would help with scholarships for young people and a lot of the musical talent um, that was that was out there at the time was partially discovered by WDIA and Nat D. Williams. He would go in the community and host this show called Amateur Hour. And um, and BB King even got his start on WDIA radio, mm. on WDIA radio. You mentioned your master's thesis. So your educational background does it lend itself to writing and and being a historian? What's your educational background? I have a master's in social science. I have a bachelor's in history, and I have a bachelor's in secondary ed social studies. So if you're listening to this on the radio, you obviously cannot see that Tanya is not African-American. She's one of our white sisters. And so let me ask you this. As you are studying this, not just this individual, but even some of the subject matter that he's writing about and what was going on in the African-American community at that time, give us give us uh, one or two of your aha moments as you're reading this work about the, the community that Nat D. Williams came from? Well, I think one of those aha moments for me always was like when I read this installment called A Letter Home, it was a letter that he wrote. It was a column that he wrote in 1949, mm-hmm. and it was written to Abraham Lincoln to commemorate like 90 years after emancipation. And all the struggles that he talked about, what it was like being the, um, how did he say it, the first man fired and the last man hired, and how, like, people would leave you, 
Like if you were a man and you weren't successful in the African-American community, your woman might leave you. And just like all the things that they had to be blue about. It connected with me on a level because being someone with a disability, mm-hmm. you don't, we don't have that equalization in society yet because there's a lot of people out there that still think if you're disabled, you can't, you can't do the same things other people, be, other people can because you need help with doing them. But, and see, so Nat D. Williams has really been a kind of personal inspiration to me because when I read about the struggles of the African-American community and what it, and what it was like to constantly have to go out and prove that you could do things, it connected with me on a momentous level. And then when I saw the work that WDIA did with the disabled community in Memphis and how they didn't want that to stop those kids. You combine all that together for me. And it was just like, it, it was something I knew I needed to spend the rest Mm -hmm. of my life doing. So as a side note, this, this letter that Nat D Williams wrote to Lincoln almost sounds like it had the same flavor as Frederick Douglass's what to the slave is the 4th of July, just kind of opening people's eyes to this is what this experience looks like. But, your story, is, as you're describing it, here you are someone who is a person in the margins. So when it comes to disabilities, that demographic is still in the margins today. Yes. And you read about a whole group of people and the overarching theme of African-Americans past and present is that of being people in the margins. And that was your connection. Yes. Absolutely. This is uh, Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. We're live in studio uh, with Homer Smith, Jermaine Beeson, and Tanya Teglo. We're talking about the influence of African-Americans through various entertainment mediums, uh, poetry, art, music, um, radio, and things along those lines. And we're just talking about the... um, Again, the influence and just what it means to the African-American community. Uh, For any of you, I wonder what it what it means to you personally for the the influence of African-Americans telling their own story and kind of taking control of their narrative. How much of a responsibility is it for not just African-Americans, but for any demographic to own their story? If, If I could just start again, there was a thought that had came to mind. Sure. Uh, any business or entity, you have to create your own story. And unfortunately, uh, an African-American business or whether it's a church or whether it's a school or whether it's an organization, uh, in, a, in a market like Erie where there's few outlets that actually touch minority people, uh, the radio, television takes a, a part in that. Um, when I go back to WBLQ that Mr. Wiley formed with GCAC and GDIC in 1984 that many of us were part of, one of the problems that that they had was national advertisers. And you're not going to be able to sustain a radio station if you're not getting advertisement dollars. So you didn't have the car dealerships. You didn't have Burger King and Kentucky Fried Chicken and all of those businesses supporting an AM station owned by African-Americans. And I have to also look at the history of other radio in Erie, Pennsylvania. 
Songs of Zion with DJ Dennis Hunter celebrating 53 years on AM 1330. You got OIC that had a program from probably 1970 to 1977 uh, that was housed at OIC with Dorothy Smith Frazier. Mel Witherspoon <coughs> went through the training there. Timmy Mack is one of the last people. Cardell Soul. Those are some Jim Christopher. Uh, I don't know if you remember the name Fancy Dancer, Carl Woodard. Those guys all went through that training program of radio broadcasting. And then uh, you also have to look at how WRG has played another part in that and continuing that that saga. So inter- being able to interview a Kevin Hart when he came in to do uh, a show here, Freddie Jackson when he came in to do a show here, Finesse Mitchell when he did the comedy club. Those are the type of things. Interviewing Jermaine Beeson and yourself mm-hmm. with the King Holiday. Those are the kind of things that that's an avenue that the radio has to play in our community to let people know of events, opportunities that are happening in the African-American community or in the majority community that they should take advantage of. I hear a lot of similarities between, and I'll come back over to you, Jermaine. I see you about to chime in. There are a lot of similarities in your journey and the journey of Mr. Williams that you studied. So we've got somebody working in education as well. You know, you talked about the advertisement then and how it helped to pay for their campaign to give back to the community mm-hmm. and just the— I think the theme is utilizing your influence to uplift your community and utilizing your gifts. Are you hearing these similarities as well? Yes, I am. Excellent. Jermaine, you wanted to chime in on that. Yeah, I think um, as, you know, even even me and your generation, we have a responsibility to our community because we know how it was back in our time. You know, we had the summer jobs and, you know, the uh, centers were – in my opinion, they were more involved in the communities, and I really don't see that today. So what I'm what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, Erie has definitely been put on the map as far as sports. You know, with uh, Bob Sanders, uh, Steffi Crosby, uh, James Conner, people like that. But um, I know that we have uh, little boys and little girls, African American or what or whatever, that you know have talents in the theater. And um, what I want to do is you know, give them an opportunity to, to, you know, show their talent and go further if possible. And that's what I really hope for them. And um, as far as J&J and whatever I put on stage or whatever I put on the Internet, I want to give a message, you know, because a lot of a lot of us don't go to uh, counselors, like you said, mm-hmm. you know. So but, you know, we'll go to church and we when we go to church, we want to hear a word. You know what I mean? And we want to we want to feel something when we go to church. So when you come see a J and J production, I want the conversation going home to be about wow. You know, I remember this when I was young, or or that. You know, or I want to give you a feeling of empowerment, or or or, or some kind of feeling that you know you want to come back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I want to counsel to people through my through my writing. See, you are touching on, again, the culture. The church is a huge part of the African-American culture. Yes. There is a lot of history behind that alone. I remember reading about Tyler Perry, and, you know, comedians would oftentimes make jokes about black folks in the movie theater, you know, talking during the movie. Right, yes. What a lot of people didn't understand, you talk about church. Our church experience, the pastor wanted you to talk back to him, still does to this very day. Yes. It's not a stoic environment. And so if the spirit moves and you want to say something back, they want you to say something back. If you want to stand up, they want you to stand up. Loudly. And so Tyler Perry, when he first started doing plays, 
you know, he's doing his thing. And he said he figured out just that. He said, this is our experience. And so in my productions, I want to embrace that. I want the woman to stand up and say, girl, I wouldn't go for that if I were you. <laughs> you know, I want people to talk back to the yes. state. And I want my actors to interact with that and kind of feel the energy. Right, right. And so for you, I'm hearing the same thing. It's yeah. that energy. You're trying to create that same energy that, that people traditionally get in church. And again, I'm not trained in this. You know, I didn't go to school. It's I really can't explain it. Uh, I just, I'm just talking about different situations that that I've experienced and that I know that that happened in the community in the world and I'm just putting it on stage and I'm also putting a twist to it for comedic reasons also you know what I mean and I but again when you when you go home I want you to have a conversation about what you saw and more importantly if something has happened to you with with this trilogy I want you to be able to talk about it and get some help mm-hmm Tanya, how was you said you you were just at the Jefferson and this was your subject matter at the Jefferson? Yes. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. How was that received? Um, how was the Q&A? Talk about that a bit. I think it was uh, received very well, actually. And I'm, I'm not sure how many of those people had ever heard of Nat D. Williams or how many of those people ever heard of WDIA. And I mean, it I mean, it felt pretty good. Being, being up there and being able to tell that story. And what's cool for me when I talk about the radio is I know that my story is in there too, but it's not about me. And I'm doing something that would preserve that preserves a history that might not that might not be known other than, out like Memphis, yeah, they know about WDIA. They know, you know what I mean. Everybody in Memphis, you say WDIA, they're gonna know what it is. But you come to an environment like Edinburgh, in Erie, or even like other cities around this part of the country, you say WDIA, they say what, <laughs> and it's really cool to know that I'm kind of opening that up, that what the DJs did, what the station personnel did, what Nat D did with his life won't be buried anymore. Mm-hmm. So for people that advocate for African-American history being brought into the mainstream, there's oftentimes a saying that goes, African, African-American history is American history. Your work is bridging that gap. When it comes to that very quote, is there a consciousness of of that very thing for you as you're doing this work that you are bringing African-American history into the mainstream with just traditional history where it belongs? I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to because I think it's important that when you look at African-American history, it's not just about African-American history. Mm-hmm. We need to start making the connection that everybody can feel those same type of feelings. Mm -hmm. Everybody has had struggles Mm -hmm. to overcome. Everybody in their given cultures and communities has had community leaders at one point. But when you look at African-American history, what you see is just how how it had to really come 
from the roots up because they didn't have politicians saying to the African-American community, what can we do to make you better? People had to bring that to the forefront in order for it to get noticed. Mm -hmm. So you had Thomas Edison as an inventor, and and certainly it could be an all-African-American school district. You know, everyone understands the contribution of Thomas Edison and everyone appreciates that con- that contribution. By the same token, the, the contributions of Lewis Latimer in that same arena, right. that should be equally as respected, appreciated and taught, mm-hmm. even if the school district is all white or what have you. And so we applaud the work that you've done. Jermaine, we'll start with you and then we'll go over to Homer Smith. Give this some, some thought, everyone. What's next for you? Because obviously all three of your journeys are fluid, Right. So this is not a posthumous conversation. (laughs) What's next for you as you go forward? We know you have a production coming up, but even beyond that, what do you want to build upon? Wow. Uh, Well, the next thing is uh, we're going to do a web series. I'm going to combine all three uh, plays that I've written thus far. But my biggest project is going to be I'm going to do a play for kids. And the message is going to be we're all created equal because uh, racism is taught. And uh, it, it's not going to stop until it stop, in, until you stop teaching it at home. You know, I know they see different things on TV or what have you, but at the end of the day, racism is taught at home. And, you know, we as parents, we need to realize that, you know, our children are watching our every move. So, and... Again, if you're if you're a racist person, your child, nine times out of ten, is going to be racist also. So my thing with uh, the next show, it's gonna it's called Bottom Feeders, and uh, I'm gonna take uh, you know you know the Bible says we're not supposed to eat crab or lobster or shrimp, shellfish, shellfish. Okay, now a shellfish is gonna fall in love with a a, a more prestigious fish swordfish or what have you and they're gonna they're gonna get caught by a landwalker which is a human but they're gonna escape and they're gonna go back and they're gonna just change the whole uh, sea mm. sounds like an interesting concept yes. very quickly before um i move on from you you know how the guest on here matt harris has this program character be about a troopers teaching kids and he's actually presented that program before the ways and means committee in congress because they see the national validity of what he's doing, the relationship between law enforcement and, and the African-American community is a national problem. Yes. Uh, character education is a national problem. I hear what you're going after, and you're going after something that has national appeal. Yes. And then I hear this this relationship with, um, I don't know how extensive it is, with the Crime Victim Center. Is there a goal to, to find a more national platform for this? Because it has all the makings of... Um, having equal value in any city you land is on. Are you thinking about it on that scale? Not yet. Uh, Corey is, but I'm not. What, Marcus, what I'm doing, I'm just writing what's in my heart, and I'm presenting it to the city. Now, Corey has a, he, he has the bigger mind. You know what I mean? But um, I want to go wherever God wants this to go. I got you. I got you. Uh, Homer, talk about what's next for you. I was just thinking about that process. Um I'm probably the old man in the group here. (laughs) So uh, I turn 66 next month. Mm. And uh, 
probably in regards to working, see myself retiring within the next year, year and a half in regards to working every day. But we've, we've started some, some new visions in regards to My Brother's Keeper, which in the past 12 years we awarded a scholarship in Bobby's name in conjunction with Super Soul Saturday and Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity. We've had 13 recipients, $1,000 scholarship. Uh, so in that regards, we've partnered with GDIC. Uh, we have what is called the Bridge Builder Scholarships in memory of Mr. Johnny Harris, Mr. R. Benjamin Wiley, Mr. John Drew. Um, and um, so, again, I see myself trying to establish scholarships for young people to continue their education. Where this year we have scholarships, uh, the Greg Myers family, the Myers family in, in memory of his, his, his family, um, Mr. Ted Johnson uh, in, in honor of his parents, Dr. Vernon D. Dobbs has awarded scholarships. Mm-hmm. Erie Rise Leadership Academy is going to award two scholarships to young people. This is our first graduating class of students who started with us in fourth grade who come out in 2020. So again, I see that as part of my vision. One thing that um, Tanya talked on, the role of the DJ was to help break new music. Mm. It's changed a little bit with the creation of YouTube because a lot of YouTube things, but if you see, if you go back to some movies like Chess Records, you see that the the, the managers going to the TV station, even though some things were payola, they were paying to get their records heard, but the, the radio stations broke music. Super So Saturday is, is blessed to have different day parts. We have a gospel show, an oldies classic oldies show, a blues show, a jazz format, hip-hop and R&B, house music. So there's something for everybody in that 33-hour block. Uh, WRD did a great thing. We have the largest block, 33 hours, but you also have a Spanish show, you have an Italian show, and you have a Polish show Mm -hmm. that covers the weekend. The students have adult-oriented rock during the week, but community volunteers operate the station on the weekend. So I see myself kind of segueing to to providing scholarship opportunities and hopefully establish more endowments. Uh, when I was working at Gannon University, we established a scholarship in memory of Mr. R. Benjamin Wiley and Mr. and Mrs. Horton. Steve Collins, who was one of our DJs when he passed away, left a gift to Gannon University that's been partnered into a scholarship in memory of himself. And also, uh, uh, they've, they've done a scholarship also in um, the name of a former teacher, and I always for, seem to forget her name, uh, and I apologize for that. But uh, so there's five or six scholarships that are, are set aside for African-American students to attend Gannon University and other scholarships for students to attend uh, HBCUs or wherever they're going to support their academic needs. With the radio station trying to get more young people involved, they say I've been involved now for 40, 43 years, uh, many of us for 40 or more, and it's going to be a time where we're going to have to train someone to kind of take our place. So mm-hmm. segueing into what the next generation is going to be. Uh, we have the block party on now. It's kind of that talk format. They kind of come to DJ Carlos, uh, DJ Rob, and DJ Slugs. They're kind of a little different than what we do, but they're kind of that new radio format where they're intersecting with each other. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, it's kind of laughter and fun. Then you have a classic show like Timmy Mack, and then you have a jazz, smooth jazz like Mr. J, and you have our gospel program 
with uh, Bishop uh, Gary L. Brown and Dorothy Smith Frazier and Deacon Ed Word. So trying to now that I've taken over with Bobby passing and kind of managing our Mm -hmm. volunteers, uh, also getting funding so uh, we can maintain our, our production studio and also purchase music that we have to purchase for those various programs. So there's the old saying that says, each one teach one, each yes. one reach one. And that yes. sounds like the theme of yes. your life going forward. Yes, sir. Tanya, what's next for you? Well, I'm working on 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 an article, trying to put an article together now on the Memphis Cotton Makers Jubilee. And what that, what that is or was was a festival they had every every spring like in april march and april and what it was was it was a was a festival where they would look at cotton and they would in Nat D. williams wdia um rq venson a bunch of african-american community leaders were involved in this and what they wanted to do was take what everybody thought of the African-American in cotton and turn it on its head and show how the African-American, African-American community actually made an industry very, very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all so much for uh, giving us your personal experiences here. What I love about each one of you is that you can see that you are putting your, your soul and your all into what you do. It definitely feels and sounds like you're all in your natural range of motion. And people are better off for it. We thank you for your contributions to um, not just Erie, but to the arts community. And so thank you to our sponsors of Next in Perspective. We want to thank Infinity Resources, uh, the Erie County DA's office, and the Robert Benjamin Wiley Community Charter School. Thank you for tuning in to Next on WQLN. Join us next month as we explore another timely topic with local guests. For radio, tune in to 91.3 FM on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. For next, I'm Marcus Atkinson. We will see you all next time.